You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James. All right. Good morning, family. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it is really good to be with you all today. Super excited about our time together. Uh, go ahead and turn to James 1 if you haven't done so already. And if you did not get one of these journals, um, I dare you, I double dare you to get up and go get one. They're right back there in front of the sound desk. They're free. They're for you. It is a copy of the book of James along with a note-taking portion on the other side. But don't you dare get one of these without getting an accompanied rubber band because we all need to be held together a little bit, right? We're a little loose. So um, get a rubber band, get a journal. You can use this as a field discovery journal throughout our time together. Over the next several months, you can record some of your findings, some encouraging things that the Lord shows you. Uh, so please get that so you won't miss out on the first few verses of our time. We've entitled this study through the book of James. Thank you for taking the double dare, y'all. Really admire that. Um, props. Uh, well, there you go. See? Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> but we've entitled our time in James 1, or in, uh, in the book of James, Stability. Stability. Quite frankly, because we are very unstable right now um, as a society, our culture, our nation, even our world, never in my lifetime, and it's not that I've lived a long time, but never in my lifetime have things been more volatile um, and, and uneasy, unpredictable. We, we need stability. Um, we, we desire truth. According to James, uh, we're, we're really, we need wisdom. And Psalm 111 in verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice wisdom have a good understanding. So we need to learn wisdom, and we need to learn how to practice it. In other words, we need to know what to think, how to think. We need to know how to focus. We need to know what to focus on if we're going to focus, especially in the midst of such a terribly confused time that we're living in. I mean, 2020 has been exhausting. We've been confused. We've been worried. We've been hurried. We're anxious. We're angry. We're too silent. We're too loud. Our hearts are divided. Our hearts are conflicted. We're tossed to and fro everywhere and anywhere. And most of us, we desire some form of good diligence, but we're often so quickly distracted. We're told to remember, but so often we forget. We, we crave to be active in important things but often we settle for slothfulness, neglecting the things that are significant. And our, our actions are often driven by fleeting emotions, subjective feelings, and not informed by objective biblical truth. And so we settle for false, and we build our lives on sand rather than stone. We're told to hold fast, but we're fast to lose our hold. And it leaves us very, very tired. Our hope is that through the time spent together in this little letter, this little book of James, is that we'll experience an increased degree of wisdom and the resulting stability that comes from learning this wisdom and applying this wisdom to our lives, where we could gain some sort of footing for our lives, where we could be made more stable, maybe to the point where we wouldn't, be so, we wouldn't scare so easily, maybe to the point where we wouldn't be so perplexed so quickly. My prayer has been that God would fix our eyes as they're so scattered and everywhere that he would fix our eyes upon him and give us poise, right? That he would open our ears and let us hear and receive and absorb truth where he would firm up our fickle hearts. If God would just strengthen us and give us a steadfastness, like a soul stability, we need Lead poured into the ballast of our hearts, our souls, and our minds. All this and more is why we've given our time to James, and we're going to be digging here for the next several months together. Um, well, first, who is James? You know, like Paul, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and so the letter is known as First and Second Timothy, right? James writes a letter as a pastor to a scattered people. And so it's known as James because he wrote it, different than Paul writing it to a certain person. This is James writing it as a pastor. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had half-brothers like Joseph and Simon and Jude who also wrote a letter in your New Testament. 
But, but James didn't believe his brother. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah, according to John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. But then Paul later tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that James was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, his brother. He saw him come back from death on the cross, and he believed him. It changed everything for James. And then in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21, we learn that James became a very strong pillar in the early church, in the, the formation of the first church in Jerusalem, that he was the pastor there. In Galatians chapter 2, we learn that James was one of the four apostles to vet and approve Saul becoming Paul, becoming an apostle himself of the early church and the writer of 13 letters of your New Testament. James had two nicknames that we know of. You can learn something from somebody's nickname, right? How did you get that nickname, right? It's always a story. Well, James had two nicknames. One was James the Just because of his righteousness. Like he lived a righteous life. He desired to be holy as God is holy. He admired his brother and wanted to be like his brother. But then another nickname was Camel Knees. He was nicknamed Camel Knees for the hours of time, the hours a day that he would spend in prayer for the calluses that would develop on his knees, the swelling of the knees, the calluses on his knees for the hours he spent praying each day. James was later cruelly martyred by the very same ones that killed his brother, the scribes and the Pharisees. And church history tells us that James was ordered to stop preaching the gospel, but he refused. And so the religious leaders took him to the pinnacle of the temple, shoved him off to his death, but the fall did not kill him. So they stoned him. He did not finally die, though, until he was clubbed to the head at the front of his church building with his parishioners watching on. James loved God. James admired and submitted to and followed Jesus as a Christian. James loved people. He was a pastor. This is Pastor James that's giving us this letter. He was a very faithful pastor to the early church in Jerusalem. And so he wrote this letter. This, wrote, this letter comes to us because he wrote it in order to help early Christians navigate persecution and distraction when life is tough. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we learn that there was this uh, great day of a, a day of persecution that started against the church in Jerusalem specifically, okay? And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The church was scattered because of this persecution. The scattering was because of the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to give up his life for Jesus. You can read about that in Acts 7. This story that I'm telling you is... is um, uh, validated by Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, where we're told that now those who were, they scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, and they scattered and traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So what James is doing here with his 108 verses that we have in his letter, he's working to encourage and guide the scattered, isolated, and afraid early church Jewish Christians that were once a part of the church. They, they gathered together. They sang. They heard the word taught. They shared communion together. They fellowshiped with one another. But then this persecution hit, and they scattered. And he's writing to them, knowing that they're tired and they're weary, and they're afraid that they're being persecuted. Most of them have been abandoned by their families. All of them are on the run. That's why he's sending a letter, because he can't say it face to face. So he sends out this letter as they're on the run scattering. And he knows that they need wisdom in how to live life as they scatter in this great difficult moment that they were facing. Their trials are a lot like yours, a lot like mine. They were abandoned, they were isolated, they were unemployed, and they had poverty. But their, their trials and their persecutions and afflictions are different than ours in a way because theirs included torture and blood and imprisonment, and crucifixion, and sword, and fire, and death. Many times was heard the phrase, the Christians to the lions. And I can hear James faithfully pastoring the early Christians by saying, I know you're scattered. I know that you're alone, and that you're weary, and that you're afraid. I know that you're confused. I know that you need to know what to think and how to think. I understand that you need to know what to do and how to do it. So I want you to know who God is, and I want you to follow him in obedience. I need you to hear from him. 
And then he unloads 59 commandments in 108 verses. It's the, it's the highest frequency of imperatives, of commands, in any other book in the New Testament. He spends his time unpacking, I believe, the Sermon on the Mount uh, that he heard his big brother Jesus preach in his 108 verses. James is considered the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's wisdom literature. Um, it is, it is, uh, James is the Proverbs of the, the New Testament, and the Proverbs is the James of the Old Testament. Well, friends, now more than any other time, you and I need what the audience needed that heard James's letter for the first time. We need to hear the word of God, and we need to follow him in obedience. Just because life isn't as normal right now, it doesn't mean that we have permission to isolate our faith or quarantine our obedience. Now more than ever, we must be about doing God's thing in God's way, and we need wisdom and stability as we go do this. Our trials might look different in some ways in the early church. Let's not trade difficulty for difficulty and stack and see how it, how it compares to the early church. We know that it's different, but that doesn't mean that we can't receive this word as relevant. Because they had trials, we have trials. They had afflictions, we've got afflictions. If they look different, that's fine. But we share it in common that life hurts for them and life hurts for us. And so when he begins in verse 2, speaking of trials, it's as relevant then as it is today. And it's as relevant today as it was then. We're to realize that we too are scattered, not just through COVID. We're not isolated just through this pandemic. But we're scattered because, you know what, we're not home yet. We're not settled. And so in a lot of ways, we're just like the audience that James was writing to. We're waiting home. We're wanting Jesus to return. And so those who are scattered, those who are confused, those who are homesick, longing for heaven one day, let's listen to the word of God together this morning. Let's start in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That servant term is basically declaring master. It's master-slave language. He's acknowledging that Jesus owns him, that he has all the rights to his life. And he writes this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The Greek word is the diaspora. The diaspora, it's the scattering of the Jews beyond Jerusalem, right? Just like we read about because of the persecution of Stephen. And then he says this, greetings. In other words, rejoice is what that word means, rejoice. So there's a very brief and literal greeting, and then he hits the ground running, right? There's not a really big introduction. It's just, I'm James. I'm writing to the, the church that's scattered. Greetings. Count it all joy when you meet trials, of various kinds. Count it all joy. Consider it. In other words, he's, he's commanding them to think this way. I'm telling you to think this way. I want you to hold this view, okay? I want you to count it complete joy, not partial. I need you to count it total joy, my redeemed family, co-ed, brothers, sisters, my family, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, when you meet various trials, when you encounter various Test and life examinations along the way. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Diversified is what this word is. Complex, manifold. Another way of thinking about it is when you have trials that hit you from every angle. I mean, it's like it's coming from everywhere and anywhere, these trials. Count it as complete joy when you experience different kinds of trials. This is a command. Consider it all joy. It's an imperative he commands Christians, that's including you, if you're a Christian, he's commanding you, he's commanding me, he's commanding the original audience, think this way. Regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of how you feel about your trial, count it all joy. Okay, what's trials? Well, for our time, this is the definition I have for us. A trial is a difficult season or situation where you feel confused, conflicted, stressed, Sick, alone, or afraid. A trial is a difficult season or situation where you feel confused or conflicted, stressed or sick, alone or afraid. Simply put, a trial is when life hurts and doesn't make sense. Most often, trials come to us and we perceive them as like roadblocks to our growth, roadblocks to our happiness. We look at them as things to remove 
and not things to move through. These trials are many and they're different and they're very, very real. Trials often start on the outside, but they can easily become temptation to sin on the inside of us. And how we process these trials, how we process the affliction, how we understand what's going on with our trial, how we respond to our trial has everything to do with faith. Because these trials are tests and they're tests regarding specifically our faith. He says this in verse 3. For, and again, this is a command. You must understand. You, you know that the te- you've got to know that the testing of your faith, the determined genuineness is what that term there means, that testing. For the determined genuineness, the testing of your faith and your trust, that testing of your faith produces, it brings about steadfastness. It brings about the ability to endure, to continue to make it. The testing of your faith produces fortitude. It produces guts. It produces grit. It produces endurance. You'll rarely get patience and endurance and steadfastness without trials. It just doesn't usually happen. Look at a parent that has five kids compared to a first-time parent. Okay? What frazzles and worries a new parent, it's not even on the radar of this seasoned parent. Like, they don't even think about it. Oh, they're fine. They're good. It's not going to hurt them. It's going to make them better. I fell off the bed. I don't remember it. Um, I was a toddler or an infant, I guess. And uh, my mom, I was a second born. My mom rushes me to the hospital, right, because I fell and hit my head. And the doctor, this is how it worked back in the 80s or 70s, said, uh, ma'am, kids aren't normal until they fall off the bed a few times, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> things have changed a little bit since then. Um, and I'm not saying I'm normal, so maybe that, I don't know, Um, now that I think about it. uh, But the things that frazzle someone who hasn't experienced trials usually rarely phases and really truly bothers someone who's been through a lot of life. If you know somebody who is poised, you know, um, patient, if you know somebody who offers a lot of grace to a lot of people, to a lot of different situations. They're, they, they're slow to judge. There's someone there who has matured through a lot of trials. But there's two sides to every coin of a trial, okay? On one side, it, let's call the one side the good teacher. This good teacher is using this test, this trial, to produce something wonderful in the life and the mind of the student. They want to prove who they are. They, they want the test and the trial to prove what they know. Uh, they, they, they desire that the student pass this test. The goal is sanctification and, and positive change. And the godly hope in the testing is increased faith and godliness. On the other side, though, of the coin of the trial of your life is what I'll call the bad teacher. And it's the bad teacher who's wanting to leverage this test, this trial, to fail the student, discredit, humiliate the life and mind of the student. They want their test and this trial to prove who they're not, right? To prove all they don't know. And they desire that the student fail. And the goal is sin. And the wicked wish and desire of the testing and trial is increased doubt and despair and insecurity. Spurgeon said this about our faith. The hand of faith is against all evil, and evil is against all faith. Faith is that blessed grace which is most pleasing to God, and hence it is the most displeasing to the devil. By faith, God is greatly glorified, and hence by faith, Satan is greatly annoyed. He rages at faith because he sees therein his own defeat and the victory of grace. The testing term used by James here is a term that was used by silversmiths. You might be familiar with this term. It refers to the working out of impurities in order to find the tested genuineness of silver, of a mineral. As the silver is heated and the dross floats to the top, the silversmith removes that top layer of grime and dirt, dross, and impurities. And the the testing continues... And the silversmith allows it this process to continue to the point where he can begin to see his reflection in the silver. The silversmith knows that the silver is ready for good use when he can easily and clearly see his reflection. 
in the silver. The result, the heating up of trials in our lives is to accomplish a purer and stronger character and faith within us, okay? It's in the heating up of our lives that our weaknesses and sin and our character flaws come to the surface so they can be transformed, informed by the gospel, transformed by the power of God to the point where we can celebrate even in those weaknesses because he's made strong. And as the heat brings these impurities of character to the surface, it raises these issues of deficiency of faith, and it is to bolster our faith. It's like when you hit the weight room, right? The growth of muscle comes through muscle fatigue of lifting weights. It's the breaking down of the muscle that produces greater, stronger muscle. It's running further distances faster that increases endurance for the runner. Well, these trials... This resistance that comes because of the trial is like the muscle of faith. It is to produce a stronger faith in us. Trials are like the silversmith's fire that's burning up nothing but dross and grime to make the silver all the more pure. You see, afflictions and trials come at us in order to show us our weak points, to let us know what the attention needs to be given there And you do this over and over and over like the silversmith so that you develop a greater health, a happier life, and a more stable faith as you age as a Christian. It is to produce greater steadfastness. And he encourages them here in verse 4 where he says, Now let steadfastness, allow steadfastness to have its full effect. The word full effect literally means workout, like, like the gym. Like, like let, it, let it work out. Let it, let it do its thing. Let it do its work. Let it have its full effect. That you may be mature, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be uh, mature and, and whole, okay? Verses 3 and 4 reminds me of Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, where it says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we rejoice in these good things, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and this hope does not put us to shame. It will not let you down. It will not disappoint you. Why? Well, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Friend, our trials produce something. In other words, your trial is not wasted. Okay? The goal of the trial is to help you become more mature, more godly, to deepen your devotion to God, to strengthen your faith to the point to where you're more complete and more whole. The goal of your life should not be merely good health, a nice home, increased comfort, bigger income, or anything that you can get through your, I don't know, 85 years here in this life. Your goal's got to be more significant than this. It's got to be deeper than this, more grand, more eternal than something so temporary as money and home and social status. You see, trials give us what money can't. Trials give us what comfort and ease cannot give us. Our trials and our afflictions, life produces steadfastness and a wholeness and a maturity that prepares you for something greater that money can't buy. Trials, by God's grace, make us whole and wholesome, and they develop us spiritually and emotionally. Therefore, trials are our friends. They're our helpers, and we should welcome them with all joy. Now, if this doesn't make sense, we must ask for God's way of thinking about this, because it's different than our thinking. That's why he leads us in verse 5 as a good pastor. Pastor James says, Now any, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives freely and generously to all without a reprimand, without getting in trouble, without reproach. It'll be given to him. So he just mentioned to be joyful through your trial, but he knows that's impossible without understanding that God gives to his people. And this request, to, to request this wisdom in the midst of your trial is exactly what God wants from his people. Wisdom helps 
guide our perspective during our trial so that we can count them as joy. And this sort of thinking only comes from God. If you can't understand this, if you can't see your way through your trial in this way, you've got to pray to God and ask him to give you what's needed to see it this way. You need wisdom. Ask him for it. He'll give it to you generously. This let him ask is third person imperative in the original language in Greek, meaning he's trying to say this. He's saying this. The person who lacks wisdom must ask God. You have to. There's there's no other option. You've got to do this. James is basically saying, if any of you don't know how to deal with these trials with joy, ask God to teach you right now. Don't waste another second. And he'll respond by giving you wisdom. But when we're in a trial, when life hits us in the gut, we most often want out of that situation. But instead, God says, come to me. In the midst of your trial, Come to me. I know you don't understand it. I know you don't get it. I want to help you understand. Ask me for perspective. Ask me for wisdom. And don't simply ask to be delivered. Ask to be developed. That's the point of the trial. It's not just the rescue, but it's a transformation that happens through it. In other words, don't just try to get out of it. Try to get something out of it. Wisdom, this is the way of wisdom, is thinking this way about your trial. Now, verse 5 has got to be one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. It tells us that we're guaranteed something if we ask for it, right? If you pray this, you automatically, every single time, get this, without question. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't ask a follow-up question. He doesn't say, why do you want wisdom? He doesn't hesitate. He's not slow about it. He gives you wisdom when you ask for wisdom. And again, wisdom is what teaches us through the trial to say, Lord, help me learn from this. So let me encourage you, family, don't waste your trial. Ask God in the midst of your trial, teach me what it is that I need to know during this trial. Get me out of it as quickly as possible, but not before you develop me the way that you want to develop me. Pastor me through this. Counsel me through my trial then he'll give you this wisdom and he'll give it generously because he's good. He'll give it to you with no strings attached, right? Like no conditions, no reservations. He just gives it to you. He's not stingy. He gives it generously. In other words, when he pours it out, it's sloshing everywhere, but it's not automatic. You've got to ask for it and you've got to ask for it by faith. Verse six talks about this. He says, but let him ask in faith, with no doubting, no wavering. For the one who wavers, the one who doubts, is uncertain. They're they're like a, a wave of the sea that's here and there, that's driven and tossed, carried and moved about by the wind. God spoke in Isaiah 7 and verse 9. He says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. He says in verse 7, For that person must not suppose or assume that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a dipsychos, okay? Which is, we, we say double-minded, but it's the, it's the word, it's, if you looked at it in English, di, di, to, psychos, mind. He's a double-minded man, unstable, reckless, uncontrollable in all his ways, James makes up this word, okay? It's nowhere else in the Bible. It's nowhere else in, his, in, in the Greek writing during his day. But it reflects back in the Old Testament a phrase that David gives us in Psalm 12 too, when it speaks of a double heart. It says that he's a double-hearted man. He's got two ways of feeling and thinking. He's a two-headed monster. He's erratic as a choppy wave in a storm-tossed sea. Double-minded, like if you think about faith, the opposite of faith is not faithlessness. The opposite of faith is double-minded. Faith is single-minded. Faith is single-hearted. Double-minded is having conflicted loyalties that you're trying to satisfy at the same time. You've got soul distractions happening at the same time. There's God and his way. There's me and my way, my desires. And I'm trying to accomplish both at the same time, which is at the heart behind Christ when he says, If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You can't live for Christ without denying yourself 
along the way of following him. Reject your desires and ask him to be your one desire, okay? Otherwise, you are dipsy coast, right? You're, you're double-minded. You're trying to go in two directions at the same time, and the only thing you're going to get is hurt. So we're to ask with faith and not with a fickle double-mindedness. And this belief here is not just belief in God that he exists, but it's belief that he's trustworthy, that he'll do what he says he's going to do. And I can hear Pastor James saying, you're scattered, you're afraid, confused, and wondering if God is aware. You're questioning if he can be trusted as you go through this trial. He knows this. And this is why he's encouraging them to, to be resolved to trust in God alone with a singularity of heart, with no divided loyalty. And so we're to pray. We're in the midst of a trial and we're feeling this, this tension, Right? We're to pray what David prayed in Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. I'm trying to go in two different directions right now. I need you to help me deny myself and unite my heart to fear your name and to honor you as my master, as James would use that word in his opening greeting. It's like in 1 Kings 18 and 21, where Elijah came to near to the people, and he said, how long will you go kind of tossed, wavering to and fro? How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. James is encouraging us, as David did in Psalm 62, 1 and 2, to have this thinking, for God alone my soul waits in silence. No one else. From him comes my salvation. Nowhere else. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And because he is alone these things, I shall not be greatly shaken. I'll not be unstable. I'll not be driven and tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea. I'll have stability. And then verse 9 through 11, James shows us how trials are used to be this great equalizer for all people, rich and poor, pride, proud and, and humble. He says, let the poor brother, the lowly brother the humble and gentle brother, boast in his exaltation, his high position, right? His salvation. He's saying, let him boast in what he will experience one day, but not today. And the rich, the wealthy, boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with burning, scorching heat and dries up and withers the grass. Its flower falls off and its attractiveness and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away and wither in the midst of all his endeavors, his pursuits, and his activities. You see, understanding the context here, many of those who James was writing to would have been very poor, and they would have been hurting. And what he's doing here is he's showing how trials have a way of leveling the field. Proud and humble, rich and poor, trials sort of equalize everything for everyone. He understands poverty to be a trial, he understands wealth to be a trial. And he says, if you're poor, you should boast that your circumstances are leading you to trust in God all the more. That though you be poor today in this world, there's an eternity of wealth that awaits you in paradise because you're rich towards God. Boast in this. Now, if you're rich, he says, be very careful. He says the trials are going to point out that money can't solve all your problems. And that no matter how much money you put on top of your hurt, it's still there. Money cannot take it away. Money can't fix just every single trial. And James is essentially saying that one day, all your stuff is going to be given to goodwill, sold at a garage sale, or burned up with fire. And so he's encouraging rich and poor alike to not build their life around their stuff and around their money, but to acknowledge the limitation of our wealth and pushes us here to be rich towards God. God asked this question of those who are wealthy in Isaiah 10 and verse 3, pointing out the limitations of the wealthy. He says, what are you going to do on the day of judgment and punishment in the ruin that'll come from afar? To whom are you going to flee for help? And where are you going to leave all your wealth? Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 12, 20 through 23 in regards to the wealthy man who bragged about having money and kicking back and relaxing, partying, carefree life. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
and the things that you've prepared, whose are they going to be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, nor about your body, what clothes you're going to put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And only trials will teach you that last part of the verse. That life is more than food and that body is more than clothing. Trials and wisdom says that. And then he bookends the first segment of his letter dealing with trials. James says, fortunate is the man. Blessed is the one, happy is the one who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the one who endures with grit the trial. For when he has stood the test, when he's proven the, the genuine nature of his faith, he will receive eternal life, the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That singular affection, that singular pleasure. The crown of eternal life is given to us by grace based on our relationship with God to those who love him. And that all has been secured for us by Jesus Christ. The one who is developed by the trial and not delivered from the trial, this one is blessed. The crown of life is like a wreath that's given to an athlete after he or she has won the race. The idea is that as we make our way faithfully through this life and its trials, one day we'll receive the victor's crown. But more importantly, the crown is a symbol of receiving the reward of an everlasting life. So as we fail forward and as we fall forward, as we limp, as we crawl, as we fight, as we make our way through this life that's full of trials, we're to know and be encouraged that one day we're going to live forever with God in paradise. So Christian, don't lose focus of this truth and do not forget that you're living for more than this life and its stuff. You're living for a future reward. So endure well. Paul would speak to us in this way from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, sure, it's wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this trial that you're going through, this light and momentary affliction, is preparing for us a crown of life, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, like riches, but to the things that are unseen, our exaltation one day. For the things that are seen are transient, fleeting, temporary, but the things that are unseen are permanent and eternal. So that's our text. I want to leave you with one thing to know, one thing to lean on when you discover that you're in a trial. I'm going to give you three more next Sunday, but this Sunday I want to give you one thing to know when you're in a trial, when life doesn't make sense and when life hurts. I want you to know God is not mad at you. When you're going through a trial, know that God is not mad at you. It is incredibly stabilizing, knowing that you can live every second under the love and favor of God. And this only comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because of Jesus and his representative life, for us, his substitutionary death as us, and his glorious resurrection, all of this has caused the Lord's anger to be turned away, and his hand is not stretched out still. For the Christian, God's wrath is no longer consuming, his disappointment no longer exists, and his fury is no longer kindled and burning. But woe to those who do not believe and follow Jesus as the master of their life and existence. Woe to you, my dear friends. You are living in the crosshairs of the wrath of the Almighty God. But if you would by faith turn and look to Jesus and believe that what he did, he did it for you, if based on the work of Jesus, you would ask for the forgiveness of your sins, oh, my sweet friend, all this and so much more would change. Almighty God's throne of judgment that is pointed directly at you will be transformed to a throne of grace if you would just call out for faith and turn to him. You would experience what Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. 
Behold, my salvation is in God. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength. The Lord God is my song and the Lord God has become my salvation. So Christian, God is not mad at you. And according to James, that's not the point of trials. In fact, friend, if you want to be used by God and useful for his purposes and his glory, you must be prepared for trials. He's entrusting you with them. These trials are gifts to you. You see, Paul says in Acts 14, 22, that it, it's only through many trials and tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. So we must know that trials come to us from God's heart and not his fist. It's not a result of finger pointing, but of comfort and development of your faith. They're a sign in many cases, in most cases, that you're doing well and not the reverse. The writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines us not out of anger, but out of love so that we can grow and share in his holiness. So trials are a sign of God's approval, not his disapproval. And they occur most often because, not because we're doing something wrong, but because we're doing things right, or at least seeking to do things in a way that would honor him. And it's unfortunate how many, many times we as Christians, we lose heart. And we, we, in the midst of a trial, we just feel like giving up because we feel like God's mad and he's like so angry with us, when in fact the complete opposite is true. So as we, as we hit trials head on, we can really respond in two ways. We can respond with the opposite of faith, and that's going to be hardening our hearts. It's going to be believing that God doesn't care, he's not aware, he's not good, and he does not keep his promises to us in Christ. Or we can respond in humility by faith, believing God, trusting God, seeing him as good and powerful, and having a kind disposition towards us because of what Jesus secured for us and settled for us, earned for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Consider Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? In the midst of a trial, you're wondering if God cares. You're wondering if he's mad. Have you forgotten that he calls you son? Have you forgotten that he talks to you as daughter? That you're part of the family of God? My son, do not regard lightly the trial, the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when in a trial, when reproved by him. Why? Well, the Lord disciplines, sends trials to the one he loves. Not that he hates, not that he's upset with. He chastises every son whom he receives, not rejects. Every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. We just heard that from James, do we not? God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, sure, all trial and discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's just what James is telling us. Consider trials as loving discipline from God, indicators of his approval, that you've been adopted into his family. Christ took the wrath of God for you. You don't have to experience it. So in the midst of a trial, don't ask for God to, or, or worry or think that God is angry at you. Instead, cry out to him like Psalm 139, 23 and 24 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Listen, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In order to endure well with joy, we must be striving after a single focused pursuit and passion for God. Fickle, shaky, unstable, divided loyalties, divided appetites, we have to remove them and have them replaced, as the old passion song in the late 90s would put it, seeking one pure and holy passion, one magnificent obsession, one glorious ambition for your life. That's where stability is found. That's where true happiness is found. That's where joy is found. 
First Peter puts it this way in conclusion of my time with you today. First Peter says it this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the crown of life. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So my sweet friend, you want stability? Don't run from trials. Seems counterintuitive. But he's at work in you through trial. He's at work through it. He's at work around it. So take courage. He's working. He's building your faith. He's refining your faith. Your steadfastness is being developed. You're learning grit. Let it do its thing. Your character is being formed. It's firming up. You're learning what it means to have spiritual guts, the, the stick to that you need. So hold fast, my friend, going through the trial. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the crown of life and eternity as you experience hell on earth. And as you experience trials, don't drift so easily to despair and anger and frustration. Let's fight the drift here. Let's pray for wisdom as we respond in faith and in love because our way is upriver. We struggle against a mighty flood and we must fight this drift. But the reward of the crown of life is in front of us and it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. So press onward. You want grit in your godliness? If you desire stability, you want to mature well and flourish spiritually, then embrace the trial. Learn that it's your friend. Envision it as joy and endure it well. The teacher of steadfastness and stability is trial. And this only comes through wisdom. We must seek the Lord in this way. But here's the good news. The great news of the gospel is regardless of your ability to hold it all together, Jesus holds it all together. And the one who's holding all things together doesn't expect you or require you to hold it all together. He just wants you to come to him when it all falls apart. You see, the great news of the gospel is that despite my faithlessness, Jesus abides and he remains faithful. And it's his responsibility to see that I cross that finish line. Yes, we're great sinners, but take courage. We've got a great Savior, and it's Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. And he was tried in every way as you have been tried, yet without sin. He was perfect. Therefore, he knows how to comfort you, and he knows how to guide you through your trials. The greatest trial that Jesus ever endured wasn't being tempted in the wilderness for 40 years or 40 days. It was his literal trial that led to his arrest and the resulting death on a cross. And get this, we're told that Jesus willingly endured the cross for us. That he suffered every trial that he experienced in order to redeem you back to his father. And modeling what James is telling us to do with trials by having joy in our trial, we're told that Jesus endured the cross with joy. Therefore, Hebrews 12, since we have, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Trials produces that endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the beginner, and the perfecter, the finisher, or alpha, omega, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Did you get that? You consider him, consider him, so that you may not grow weary. Consider him so that you would not lose heart and become faint-hearted. Keep your eyes on him. Look to him, the author and finisher, as you go through your trial. Don't get caught up in a trial. Be developed and not delivered. 
Keep your eyes on Jesus. Develop that fortitude that's going to help get you through the rest of this life, producing a greater maturity, reflecting more of his glory, being more useful tool in the hands of God. Trials do this. Anticipating the crown of life that's before you. Make it obvious that your treasure's not here, that your hope isn't here. And trials have a way of releasing our hands from the things that we thought could save. Well, now as we close our time together in God's word today, let all those who trust and believe in Jesus come to the Lord's table as we remember the, this very suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. Right here is where we intentionally remember and focus on, through communion, the faithfulness of God. We acknowledge the very consistent, persistent presence of the Holy Spirit, and we remember and reflect on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christian, remember, as you take communion this morning, remember, God is not mad at you. He took out all that wrath on Jesus on the cross in your place for you. So forget not. And remind yourself, not only that God's not mad at you, but that Jesus did what he did with joy for you. Therefore, count it all joy as you walk your road. Let me pray for us now as we take communion. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that it would provide such a comfort and a fuel to endure for my friends, my brothers and sisters that are here. Lord, help, uh, help this sermon today and the truth from your word that's been spoken and read aloud. Lord, help it uh, cause the seed, seed of your word to sink deep into the soil of our hearts. Lord, so that things are produced, that fruit begins to emerge, that we begin to think through tough times in this life a little bit differently. Lord, build our faith through our trial. Lord, many of my friends are, have experienced deep, depressing trials. They are overwhelmed. They're almost broken, Lord. Lord, to the point of, of, of no usefulness and feeling like they have no purpose. And, and they do wonder if you're mad at them. Lord, encourage them, strengthen them, hold up their weary arms. Lord, give them grit. Give them heart to continue onward. Lord, give them what's needed to increase their faith and help them become resolved to follow you even in the midst of this trial. We thank you that you are good and that you're trustworthy, that you're faithful and that you're true. Lord, help my friends that are going through trials right now where it's really hard to believe that. Lord, help them. Help them ask you for greater faith. Lord, comfort them in their trial and affliction. And now add your special blessing to this time of remembering what changed everything for us what Christ has done. Jesus, thank you for enduring this and enduring it with joy. And we can't wait to share in this meal with you one day in paradise. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James.